Welcome to the AMIT podcast. Today's topic is tooth transplantation. The AMIT conference is held in Munich this year. It's all about this very important topic, MIH. You can network, learn from the important experts in this field of MIH. This podcast is supported by GC Europe. And now have fun listening to Monty Dugal. Welcome to today's show. I'm connected over the internet with Monty Dugal. Hi, Monty. Hi. There will be a nice conference in Dubai pretty soon, the AMIT conference. And we have the pleasure to talk about MIH and tooth transplantation. Is there actually connections between these two things? Well, the only connection you can make between MIH and transplantation is because a lot of the teeth which have MIH, especially molars, will eventually be lost. There's a very high sort of incidence of extraction of these teeth. So some of them could be replaced by autotransplantation. But MIH is by itself a real puzzle. Even now, you know, after so many years of discussion and scientific congresses, people still don't really understand the basis of MIH. And I think there's a lot more work to be done on it. But I think this Congress in uh, Dubai, the Amit Congress, ha is one of the first in its in MIH, which has brought together almost every researcher who has published on MIH in one format, in one conference. And if you look at the program of MIH or the Amit Conference in Dubai, you can see that almost every name you read on the program is the person associated with MIH. So autotransplantation is not directly linked to MIH, but of course, any tooth that is lost could be replaced potentially with autotransplantation. That's the, that's the connection between the two. So it's probably rather molars, uh, which could be replaced and It's probably the wisdom tooth, which is the best candidate for this auto-transportation. Yes. yes. So, I mean, the, my experience is mainly for anterior auto-transplantation because I work with children and adolescents. So, and my main area of research is dental traumatology. So, I work with trauma and a lot of the teeth that are lost through trauma, I have replaced with auto-transplantation. And I have done about 327 autotransplants till date. But there are people in the world, many people, there, is, there are some important researchers in the world and clinicians, like in uh, Professor Sukiboshi in Japan. Oh, yes. And, and, and uh, Gabriel Krastel in Germany, who have experience in molar transplantation as well. And uh, so people do molar transplantation. And like you said, it is usually the third molar that is used to transplant other mole into other molar positions. But my experience is mainly anterior autotransplantation. In anterior, you usually transplant a premolar in the anterior region. Yes. So, so basically, the anterior transplantation is dependent on the orthodontic opinion. 
And as you know, many children these days have orthodontic malocclusion. And so depending on which tooth the orthodontist wants to extract, it's usually a premolar. Sometimes it's an ectopic canine. So if it's a canine that's blocked out. So I've done many transplantations with an, where I have replaced an upper anterior with a canine as well. But in 90% of the cases, it's usually a premolar. And out of the premolars, it's usually all the premolars except the upper first premolar because that has two roots. So we usually prefer single rooted teeth for autotransplantation to the anterior region. I myself am a big fan of autotransplantation, but I only managed uh, so far to see one uh, one operation or transplantation when I visited a colleague. How do you think a dentist should start in, with this topic if he's interested? There is only one way to start. And that is, if you are a dentist on your own, you cannot start on autotransplantation. Autotransplantation is one of those things in dentistry which is dependent on an interdisciplinary approach. So you need to make a team. Because if you are a dentist alone, there is nothing. You cannot... You cannot do orthodontic assessment. Then you have the surgical implications. Then you have the endodontic implications. Then you have the prosthodontic implications when you have to build a premolar to look like an upper incisor. So the only way I would suggest anybody who's interested in autotransplantation to progress is by forming an interdisciplinary team. And this is the most important. I mean, the key members of this team are pediatric dentists. If you're doing it in growing people, you need an orthodontist who will do the orthodontic assessment. Then you also need an endodontist or a prosthodontist on board who will be able to deal with complex of uh, endodontic or rehabilitation or reshaping issues of the premolar. So really, I would strongly suggest anybody to work in interdisciplinary teams. I've been to some congresses, for example, the World Tooth Transplantation Congress, and that's basically uh, also what the Rotterdam team uh, said. You yeah. need an orthodontist, periodontist who is uh, good uh, with managing the gum. He, they call this restorative dentist and endodontist. Although in Germany, for example, these two are kind of connected, but we, since we don't have real endodontists like uh, you internationally, it's more like this way but it's kind of interesting but i also found out that choosing the surgeon is quite important because if you if you take a standard all factual surgeons they don't treat this teeth very nicely this is not a criticism of surgeons but the problem is that the surgeons deal with big things you know the oral maxillofacial surgeons usually do mandibular surgery maxillary surgery they do cancer surgery in the UK, for example. So when you give them a tooth with a periodontal ligament, for them, it's nothing very important or they don't really appreciate the, that stuff. So yes, the key thing, one of the, if, if somebody says to me, you've got to give only one message to dentists about success of autotransplantation, I would say, please take care of the periodontal ligament of the donor tooth. And Sometimes the maxillofacial surgeons overlook 
the delicacy of the periodontal ligament. I remember about 10, 15 years ago when we started the autotransplantation program in Leeds, when I was still in Leeds in the United Kingdom, uh, I sent nine teeth, nine patients to the oral surgeons and they all came back ankylosed. And the, then the 10th case, I went to the theater to see how they did it. And I saw that they were with a mallet, they were hammering the autotransplant into the socket. So I realized that the oral surgeons are not always the best people to appreciate the delicacy of the periodontal ligament. So I decided to go to one of my colleagues in private practice who did implants. And I learned implant surgery from him. And I then applied that implant surgery. And the other 300 plus transplants that we did, I did myself after that. And, and I did not send them to an oral surgeon. So you're right. I mean, one of the key factors is how you handle the periodontal ligament. Because if the tooth does not heal with periodontal ligament, then you're just replacing one ankylosed tooth with another ankylosed tooth, which is not what you want to do. Actually, it's even quite messy once you have an ankylosed tooth. I really like your approach where you decoronize this tooth in order that the ankylosis is not stopping the growth of the child or the human. Ankylosis actually gives us a huge opportunity because in children, ankylosis is always followed by replacement resorption, which means that the root will be replaced with bone. So from one point of view, that's a wonderful thing because body is giving us bone, which is what we need. But the second problem with ankylosis is that there is infra-occlusion, which means there is a vertical obstruction of alveolar bone growth. So even if you get replacement of root with bone, you cannot take the full benefit from it because vertically the bone is not growing. And what decoronation does is when you decoronate, you resume vertical bone growth. And then once the bone has started to grow vertically, then when there is resorption going on and replacement with bone, then you can benefit from vertical alveolar bone growth and buccolingual bone growth in three dimensions. So decoronation actually is a wonderful procedure because it allows you to gain bone vertically and buccopalatally. How long does this process usually take? It, could, it can take anything up to six months. And sometimes I have decoronated a tooth and then say four months after decoronation, the patient is ready for an autotransplantation. And you go to theater and you still find little pieces of dentine or cementum in the socket. But that's not a big deal. You can remove them or you can even leave them because they are essentially a part of the bone after that. So if you find a few pieces of root or dentine in the socket when you're doing an autotransplant, you either, if it's easy to take them off, you can drill them out or just leave them. It's They, they basically have no PDL. So essentially, they are a part of the bone. Uh, when we're coming to the auto-transportation process, uh, are you taking a CBDC and uh, like these dummy models or are you doing the, the classical way that you drill your own socket? Yeah. In the past, we used to do it the classical way. But now with imaging techniques, it's a shame not to use them. So 
it, the imaging techniques give us two advantages. First of all, they allow you to plan the surgery carefully because with, with three-dimensional approach, with CBCT, for example, you can see how much buccal bone there is, how much vertical bone there is, and all that. But the biggest advantage which a CBCT gives you, or which I found gave me, was, let me give you a scenario, right? Let us say that you have, you want to do a lower five transplant into the upper left incisor region. You make a socket in the upper left incisor region. Then you extract the lower five and you put it inside. And you find almost always that the first time it will never fit properly into the socket. So then you take that five and put it back in its socket where it was. You make the socket a bit bigger. You might have to do this three or four or five times. But every time you're trying the premolar in, you're damaging the periodontal ligament. So what we do now is I always do a CBCT image of the lower premolar. And using that CBCT image, I can make, using a 3D printer, an exact replica of that lower premolar in a biocompatible material. And then we get that autoclaved. It comes to the operating theater when I'm making the socket. And when I make the socket, I always only try that 3D replica in the socket. And once I'm happy that the 3D replica is fitting properly, then I extract the lower premolar and transfer it. And the extra alveolar time is actually only a few seconds. So with this technique, you can dramatically improve the outcome of the autotransplant. So that is why these imaging techniques are so important these days. I heard one time that even when you print this model, you even try it to print it a little bit thicker, like 2% thicker. Yes, um, about three millimeters. I mean, our idea is that our our research shows that the 3D replica is about 3 mm short, smaller than the actual dimension of the tooth. So you slightly over-prepare when you use the 3D replica. I mean, you already mentioned that uh, the PDL is very important. So how? what are your hints for extracting a tooth so the PDL stays that way? Do you have a special technique, special porphyry? I think people have spent a lot of time in the literature talking about this, you know. And um, to tell you the truth, there is no extraction technique in the world that will not damage the PDL. It doesn't matter how gently you do it, you know. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we have a lot of jokes at the moment because of the Euro 2021, you know, about the Italians being, you know, very gentle and very stylish and all that sort of stuff. You know, nobody, even how gentle and stylish you are, can extract a premolar without damaging the, the, the pediat. The only thing I would suggest is that when you put the forceps on the crown, The, because you are putting the forceps quite hard, sometimes you can get micro fractures of the enamel. So what I do is I put a piece of gauze on the crown and then I apply my forceps on top of that. So when I'm moving or rotating the premolar, at least I'm not cracking the enamel of the tooth. But other than that, honestly, I have never found a technique that will damage the PDL less or more 
I mean, of course, if it's a very difficult extraction, it will damage the PDL more. But most extractions are not difficult. But whatever you do, you will damage the PDL. But the important thing is, don't allow much extra alveolar time. So if you have 3D printouts, prepare the socket and transfer the tooth once. That seems to be the key in the success of an autotransplantation. Do you cut the gun with a scalpel before you? I, I don't do anything like that. Okay. I just put a gauze on it and I gently rotate the tooth out. That's so it. even a little bit rotation. And it's probably pretty much basic standard forceps you use. That's just normal. Everything is normal. I think, you know, we have a saying in English, use the KISS approach, K-I-S. Keep it simple. Yeah. And if you look at the literature, people talk a lot about these complicated things. You should hold the tooth like nothing. Just extract it and put it in. But the biggest thing which comes from research on evulsion and reimplantation is the key for periodontal healing is extra alveolar time. So make sure you put the tooth from one place to the other quickly. That's all. Let's talk about, or let's kind of divide the autotransplantation in young patients yeah. where the root is not completely developed yeah. versus uh, adult patients where the root formation is finished. Yeah, it's, that's a wonderful, that's a really good question and a sort of discussion because those two are completely different. When you're transplanting a tooth with an immature root development, in a child or in an adolescent, then the chances of revascularization and continued root development are about 75%, but depending on the surgical technique you've used. So the technique that I use and the data that I've published, we've already published this, our sample, the chances of root development after transplantation is 75%. For teeth with incomplete root development and open apex. If the apex is closed of the donor tooth and the root development is complete, there is no chance of any pulp healing. So in those cases, you have to electively do root canal treatment, always. And the way I do it is that I do it two weeks after autotransplantation. So I transplant. When the patient comes back after two weeks, I extirpate the pulp. And then after further two weeks, I take the splint off. So if it's a closed apex, always, always root treat it. If it's an open apex and you are confident that your surgical technique and your extra alveolar time is minimal, then the chances of revascularization and pulp healing are excellent. Just one question. What's the reason why you do you doing the root canal treatment later? I think when whenever the tooth is splinted, I would say from an odontic point of view, it it's kind of harder to do it. Wouldn't be easier to do it before? What's your argument for that? My only argument is that when you let us say you do a premolar root treatment in situ before autotransplantation, you are making the crown a bit hollow then the chances of the crown fracturing when you extract the tooth are much higher. So that is why I never prefer to do that before. Okay. Because there is no reason why you cannot do it two weeks or four weeks later. It's, you know, I, I think that 
doing the root treatment first, weakening the crown of the tooth, then trying to extract it, the chances of you fracturing the crown off are much higher than not. That's a fair argument, actually. Actually, my uh, thought process would be, actually, if something goes wrong in the endodontic treatment, I might be able to correct it in the short extra oral time. <laughs> uh, that would be my argument for doing it before. The workflow or the workflow would be finished basically after the transplantation and I just would need to follow up with the patient. Yeah, but the, the thing with these days, endodontic treatment is simple. It's not a complication, you know. I mean, if you do it two weeks after, I've never had a problem. I mean, you just go in there, you extirpate the pulp. It's not a big deal. So, I mean, I prefer to do it after I've finished, after I've transplanted. Maybe a stupid question, but the apex locator is working yes. after the transplantation. Okay. Yes, of course. Yeah, of course. Apex locator will just locate the apex of any tooth anywhere. Mm. Okay. Yeah, and... We haven't uh, really talked about the splinting time yet. What's yeah. the usual splinting time you suggest? The splinting time, usually, we used to follow the same principle as for replantation. So after, and for many years, the splinting time for replantation used to be for two weeks. Recently, in the IEDT guidelines, they've revised it up to four weeks. Oh, so, really? Yeah, so between two and four weeks. So basically, I always found that when I took the splint off after two weeks, the tooth was still quite mobile. So the last 50% of the transplants that I did, I left the splint on for four weeks. The only thing is that we use flexible splint. We don't use rigid splinting. Even though, having said that, I mean, if you look at the literature, there is no evidence in favor of flexible splinting. But Common sense dictates, uh, and our knowledge of physiology dictates that things always heal better when they are in physiological mobility in the body. So I always use a physiological splinting, which means I'll use a very flexible wire to splint the teeth after transplantation. But I have recently been using four-week splinting time for all the autotransplants, which I think it gives a much more stable result when you take the splint off after four weeks. When you transplant the tooth, do you uh, transplant it right into kind of an occlusion or rather an no. infra-occlusion? Okay. Yeah, slightly infra-occlusion because you don't want the patient to bite in it. Sometimes that is not easy because if you're doing the transplant under general anesthesia and the patient has a tube in the mouth, you cannot check the occlusion, you know, because there's a tube in there. Uh, so... I think sometimes it's a little bit of a guesswork, but preferably we should have it out of occlusion at, after the surgery for a few weeks for the PDL not to be traumatized with masticatory forces. So, and after the four weeks of splinting, during that time you do your endodontic treatment, are you doing it yourself or do you have an endodontist for that? Well, the thing is that it depends because I am a very traditionally trained pediatric dentist. So I'm very good at endo myself. So I always do it myself. Of course, some complex endo, I would pass it on to my endo colleagues, but 99% of all endo I can do myself. But having said that, that is only because I, have, I was trained in that particular way. But 
I have no hesitation whatsoever in recommending people to get proper endodontic colleague on board in an interdisciplinary team to do the endodontics. I mean, if you're not confident in doing endodontics, don't do it. Endodontics is not everyone's cup of tea. It's a very specialized area. And I would highly recommend that people seek an endodontist on their interdisciplinary team to do endodontic treatment on these teeth. Since we're approaching basically the last stop of this auto-pensibilitation process, when do you suggest to restore the teeth? I have a very strong opinion on this. I restore the tooth the day I take the splint off. Now, when I say restore, I don't make it look uh, so beautiful that this guy can go and do modeling for uh, the Vogue magazine. But I make it look almost like a incisor. You know, I don't know what the situation is in other countries or in Germany. But as you know, in Britain, if you are going to a school, kids can be very cruel. Right? And if you go in there with a premolar, they will crucify you, honestly. I mean, so I don't like my kids going into the school looking like that. So as soon as I get a chance, so I usually do it. I take the splint off after four weeks and I build the tooth up to make it roughly look like a front tooth. It's not perfect. It's not beautiful. But if the child just smiles, nobody could say, Oh my God, what's that horrible thing in the front of your mouth? So I would always build it up after four weeks. That's my, I've done it for almost every single one of my case. Simple, straightforward hand build up with composite or using one of those transparent Odespella crown forms. Hmm. I use them just to build the front of the tooth to make it look roughly like an incisor tooth. And then you wait, wait, wait. And once the orthodontic treatment is complete, then you can uh, send it to your to your colleagues in, in uh, restorative dentistry to, make, to do a composite or a porcelain veneer and make it look really nice. But as pediatric dentists, we know how to use composites. So we can easily make it look reasonably like a front tooth. Yeah. <laughs> Um, just because you mentioned orthodontic treatment, yeah. I think for you it's probably obvious for me as well, but we might point it out that there's no problem with, uh, let's call it composite veneers and orthodontic treatment with brackets or anything. No, so yeah, absolutely fine. I mean, there are lots of people these days have composites and, you know, you can bond brackets onto anything these days. So it's not a big deal at all. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I had to find out that orthodontists are much better in bonding brackets than me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these days, the bonding systems are so fantastic. And, you know, you have so many fantastic, a lot of the, some orthodontists use glass animals, some use composites. I mean, there's so, such a lot of array of materials used now for orthodontic brackets and it, they bond to anything. So it's okay. Can you give a time range when the orthodontic treatment can begin after autotransplantation? Yeah, there are two schools of thought on this. I have always worked on the principle that you should do orthodontic treatment six months after the transplantation. And because that guidance comes from 
actually my own work over the years. And I have published some guidelines internationally saying that all orthodontic treatment in cases of dental trauma should start six months after the dental trauma and autotransplantation is a form of dental trauma. So I extrapolated that to say six months. But last two years ago, uh, we were invited to give, uh, there was a symposium in Copenhagen organized by our mentor, Professor Jens Andresen. And he asked me to speak on autotransplantation. And in the same meeting, the Rotterdam team was there. And the Rotterdam team was saying that they actually start the, the orthodontic treatment almost immediately after the autotransplantation. And their argument is that when you move the tooth quickly, the chances of ankylosis are less. So, so it's a two, and I have nothing against that whatsoever because they did not present any evidence in favor of that. And I don't have any evidence against that. So, so I'm an academic, you know, I never condemn something unless I can show scientifically that it doesn't work. And the team from Rotterdam presented wonderful data and they showed excellent outcomes. So obviously it's working for them. But I haven't changed my practice. I still do it six months after the autotransplant, even though I have seriously thought about doing it earlier, as I heard in this presentation from the Rotterdam team. So at the moment, I think more research needs to be done. But both seem to work quite well. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, more research needs to be done. This is always, uh, always the last always. line <laughs> of every paper. <laughs> yeah. I think we just finish with this podcast with more research needs to be done. More research. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot, Diamante. Okay, cheers. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much.